Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation, and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Monday Breakfast here with Will and Lucy in the studio today. We've got a jam-packed show, as we always do. Um, but today, especially, we're um, going to be speaking to some pretty cool guests, so also we'll have your pens out because there are a couple of announcements during the show. Um, so first up, we're speaking to director and... Co- oh, I'm sorry. Lucy, how are you today? Oh, Will, thank you so much. <laughs> Look, I'm great. I'm just happy to be here. Happy it's Monday. Yep. Happy to be joining you in studio. Excited mm-hmm. about talking to some of the guests we've got in or all of the guests we've got in. But you were about to say that you are speaking to... Yes, I'm speaking to the director and composer of Vessel, which is a new piece coming out from Outer Urban Projects. The director's name is Irene Vela, and we're excited to talk to her soon. Um, and what do we have coming up after that? We are then going to hear from Rachel Linsky from the Sustainable Cities campaign. She spoke with Phil from Dirt Radio. Um, and then we are speaking to... We're speaking to Ben Campbell, who's the community organiser for the Wilderness Society. Um, ben Campbell's going to be telling us about the Great Forest National Park campaign and um, a couple of pretty cool monthly walks that the Wilderness Society is organising just so people get to know about the Great Forest National Park. Eight o'clock, we've got our alternative news segment where we cover some of the news stories that are and are not making mainstream news this morning. Absolutely. And then after that, we'll be speaking again to Paul Power, who's the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia. Um, We had a bit of a conversation last week about a report that came out called Unwelcome Visitors, and we'll be uh, continuing our discussion this week. Looking forward to hearing the second part of that interview. We're also going to hear from Yana Gibson from APRA AMCOS, who's going to speak with us about the gender parity calls for songwriters that APRA AMCOS set recently. That's right. Um, and But first of all, we're going to uh, listen to a bit of a song um, just to start off our morning. Um, you're going to be listening to uh, Yo-Yo, Two Steps on the Water. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. Hello, I am Mahsa Vahdat. Hi, I'm Marjan. 
and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on your radio dial. Also on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Please subscribe. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10 a.m. every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. Alrighty. Uh, welcome back to the studio. You're listening to Monday Breakfast here with uh, Will and Lucy. And right now we're on the phone with Irene Vailer. Outer Urban Projects is an innovative theatre company sourcing its talent from the culturally and ethnically diverse northern suburbs of Melbourne. Vessel is a dance drama exploring birth and the circumstances into which you were born, spanning generations and realities. Composer, director and director of Vessel, Irene Vela joins us on the phone. She is also the artistic director of Outer Urban Projects. Irene, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Good morning. Good morning. Um, to start with, Irene, um, could you tell us a little bit about Vessel? I gave a bit of a brief inter- introduction, but what would uh, people be um, expecting to see if they, uh, they turned up to Vessel? No, they, they won't. I mean, they won't. But, I mean, it's a big thing, you know, what you expect, I guess, uh, to see of a dance work. I mean, you'll, you'll expect to see a dance work, but you may not expect to see um, three very differing styles of choreography. There are three choreographers in this show, and they're all incredibly different. We have Demi uh, Serrano, who's um, a hip-hop, Dancer, she um, she has as an interesting trajectory as a choreographer because she's she's a dancer first and foremost, um, but very street style. She was uh, probably no, she was not probably she was in fact I think um, I forgot that name of that style of dance, break dance, female break dance, champion of Australia quite a few years back. The very physical. Um, Physical street style, and then uh, there's Nevhat Erpola, who whose style is very um, well. It's contemporary, so that's what you know. It, it, genre-wise, it gets it gets put in there, but it's incredibly. I think for me, it's a very feminine, uh, feminine uh, style of, of choreography, um, and very uh, you know languid and uh, reflective. And then uh, Thomas E. S. Kelly, who's also a contemporary choreographer. Um, he harks from New South Wales, and he's a very, very unique style as well. Uh, you know, they're all they're all like all these different gems. You know, there's a sapphire, there's a ruby, and there's a diamond amongst it. So, yeah, sounds wonderful. And uh, so, how what was what is the idea behind Vessel? Um, the, um, the the media that I've read has makes some sort of reference to the Civ X tragedy in 2001, where uh, uh, 353, I believe, asylum seekers um, drowned off the the sea between Sumatra and Christmas Island. And this story is woven into Vessel in some way, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, it, it, it is in a very, very um, symbolic sense. It's it's a it's a dance work. So it's not, we're not actually telling a story as such. Mm. Um, a, you know, a narrative. We're not we're not doing that. But but we are looking at um, as we're looking at what it means to to give birth and where and what you're born into. That is a very important part of it. That uh, that you you can be born into a family where there is no choice but to flee. And um, because we, we're kind of drawing an analogy between, I guess, um, uh, trying to... That, that the body is, in fact, a, a vessel uh, for a woman, uh, that uh, you are nurturing this life in, in your body to give it every possible chance of survival. Um and likewise in life, that really with, with, with loved ones, with family, um, and even as an individual, to give yourself the best possible chance to thrive, to live, to survive, you board that vessel to come, come somewhere else, to come somewhere safe. So that's, that's kind of the analogy, I guess, of the CIVX, and uh, it doesn't always work out. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's not, it's not always, Successful. That's right. There is and, always um, risk involved in both the the journeys that are people who make right. in those vessels, but also in, exactly. in being born into the world as well. Yes, exactly. That's mm. exactly it. And and of course we look at all the I guess the joy, the beauty of 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 nurturing, of of, of being tied, of, of being connected. When you let when do you let go of that relationship between parent and child from both perspectives? It's probably one of the most difficult things to do, but but sometimes it's just beautiful to stay connected, and yeah, you know, the dancers explore that as well. So, and then of course there's the light. There's the light um, in that relationship. The very light, beautiful um, nature of, of that parent-child connection. But there's also there's also the, the the issue of power and the abuse of power within that. So yeah, it's it's not a story as such. But it's drawing on, on, on states and, and feelings of, of the parent-child, and particularly the mother-child connection. That's right. And uh, so you, you are um, dealing with an intergenerational cast, um, such as the, the makeup of Outer Open Projects. So you have um, quite young dancers, and also yeah. um, there's, there's an actor as well um, involved in this, but it's primarily a dance piece, as far as I understand. Yes, absolutely. Um, so how do, yeah. you, how do you go about... Uh, Sort of directing younger um, younger performers performers to sort of deal with such complex material. Well, yeah, it's difficult. It's it's, it's not an easy subject, but there mm. is, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, yeah. But they're they're pretty switched on. A very small. I guess for me, it's um, I'm, the choreographers are the ones. I mean, I've, I've, I'm sort of over overlooking the the running um, of the rehearsals. The scenes um, and making sure the choreographers kind of are fed the right kind of themes that we're we're exploring in this work and, and trying to connect all the three different styles. So the work is really in the choreography, um, kind of helping to, to stitch all the pieces together. What's difficult, I think, is I'm sorry, Irene. Can I ask you to come a bit closer to the phone, or yeah, perhaps yeah. maybe shift? It's um, the signal's go. a bit weak. Fantastic, thank yeah. you. Sorry, what were you saying? Uh, where did you, where did I get to? Uh, what did you hear? <laughs> oh, oh, no, we did actually hear everything you were saying. It was just very thin. It was very thin. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, look, what's difficult with with young with young people is that you you have to be very careful about physicality mm-hmm. uh, and and content to a point. You know, um, so you have to really find a, a really a, a fine. It's a fine balance. You know, when you're dealing with underage um, kids that are dancing, um, not all of them are underage, of course. You know, when I say underage, under eighteen. Mm. Um, there are people that have just left school. But, yeah, you do have to be aware that there are differing age groups and some are still at home and some have left home. Certainly. And when you're dealing with, the, you know, with a theme uh, that's so um, kind of on some levels quite heavy, you can go into very heavy terrain, very physical terrain, you have to, yeah, I guess you have to be careful. And there's a level know, of so care, they, yeah. Um, so just to, just to, um, as we head to the end of the interview, I'd like to hear maybe a bit more about Outer Urban Projects. Um, so for, the, for those people who aren't um, aware, the Outer Urban Projects is a theatre and dance collective um, operating um, with talent sourced from Melbourne's outer northern suburbs. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, look, it's a performing arts, performing arts, performing yes, arts yeah. organisation. It is, and that in, encompasses theatre and spoken word and rap and song singers and songwriting, pretty much anything that falls under performing arts. And we do source a lot of our, we you know our our, our young people from that area. That's that's our beat, if you like. But of course, we work with with young people and artists from all over Victoria and all over Australia, in fact. And, yeah. And sometimes all over the world, because when we first did this project, we were working with Neil Eremia of Black Race Dance Company in New Zealand. But that's that's our beat, and and uh, there's so little little infrastructure in the north when it comes to, to the arts, and it's it's not a very well serviced area. And we, you know, that's our our mission is that we're we're out there and we provide some infrastructure for all that incredible talent that perhaps doesn't find a voice, uh, a, a mode of expression, or even um, uh, a way into training. We, we, we try to provide that. Wonderful. Um, so if folks are more interested in um, sort of hearing more diverse voices in the Australian arts scene, you definitely should turn up to Vessel, which is running from the 20th to the 23rd of September at the Arts Centre. I've been speaking to Irene Vailer, who's the direct artistic director of Outer Urban Projects, uh, about the new work Vessel, which I just mentioned. We'll have all the details on our website, and you can also follow Outer Urban Projects on at Outer Urban on Twitter and also Instagram. Irene, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Bye. Uh, you are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, um, and now another song. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR Digital on digital, and 3cr.org.au if you'd like. To listen online, it is 7.22am and outside it is a relatively mild 14.4, which I think is pretty good for a Melbourne winter morning. Um, you were just listening to Camp Sovereignty by Hakopa Hapeta. And now we're going to have a little interview that was on Dirt Radio. Rachel Linsky from the Sustainable Cities Campaign spoke with Phil from Dirt Radio. Friends of the Earth have embarked on a collaboration with Public Transport Not Traffic to create a Sustainable Cities Campaign to encourage the investment in public transport, no new major roads and encouraging active travel. Um, Have a listen to Dirt Radio's Phil Evans now. He's got all the goss. 
Joining us today is Rachel Linsky in the studio. She is the new Sustainable Cities campaigner at Friends of the Earth Melbourne, um, just a couple of weeks into the job. But we thought we'd jump onto the show and have a little chat with her about uh, what's going on uh, around at FOE, around the Sustainable Cities area. Good morning, Rachel. Welcome to the studio. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. And it's really exciting to be on board with the FOE crew. So can you tell us a little bit about sustainable cities? I mean, what, what do we mean by that? I mean, sustainability is this kind of buzzword that is uh, thrown around by in a lot of circles. And um, a lot of people kind of see it a bit more cynically now around with uh, so much greenwash going on from corporations. What do you mean when you talk about sustainable cities? Yeah, there's heaps of different ways that you can talk about sustainability in cities. Everything from our buildings to our transport to our... Um, way in which we build our buildings and, you know, the consumption that we have, you know, in our meals and everything. For me, and something that I think that is a really tangible way in which we can have quite a big impact is through our transport system. And I have previously been working in uh, with bike riders in cycling advocacy. And so I see this role as a real opportunity to kind of build on that um, and bring it into a, a bigger picture and a bigger frame about broadly, you know, what is our transport system doing? How do we connect with our city and move about it in a way that's going to have less of an impact on the environment and, in fact, provide opportunities to connect better with the places in which we're spending a lot of our time? Sure. And, um, I mean, it's something Melbourne prides itself on is its its public ser- uh, public transport uh, services that it has. Um what 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 do you see like uh you know like there's there's many criticisms for and against like what do you see is the uh, the best thing about Melbourne's public transport system? Yeah, certainly there was a big um, understanding when, as I was moving here that people were talking about the great public transport system that we have here, and I've certainly now got the experience of being here and trying to um, navigate that system. And there's an extensive network, but it's um, about building on that and you know. A lot of, you know, those train networks haven't been updated for decades, mm. um, despite the fact that our population is changing and, you know, we're living in more and more areas. Um, and so kind of keeping that infrastructure in line with what um, what the demand is uh, hasn't really kept pace. And so I think that there's a lot of stuff now coming out about really high um, uh, congestion on our roads and a lot of um, public transport that's really full and some that, you know, the um, the endless debate about buses and the, the <laughs> role that they play in the system has uh, been an interesting one to hear about from people who um, are here in Melbourne and, you know, that they could fill a, a really important gap beto- that um, isn't currently being filled by um, the kind of major infrastructure of trains and trams. But maybe they haven't done it so well in terms of um, how we use that and kind of the, the perceptions of you know, buses hasn't got that kind of level of um, support within the community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many people are really prepared to uh, to jump on the trams, jump on the train network. But it's, it's strange being from Perth myself. Um, you know, you're relying on the bus system. Yeah, as, as the in Canberra, network. that's all we have. <laughs> um, and it's 
an hourly bus out in the suburbs. So if you mm. miss that one bus, then it uh, really throws out your day. Mm. So. And I'm, I'm sure um, listeners in the western suburbs of Melbourne can really relate to that. Um, it's a, a you know an, an interesting uh, like um, have and have nots that um, seems to happen in Melbourne around public transport. Uh, while the eastern suburbs have this fantastic network of um, trams and trains available, the, the western suburbs, traditionally the, the workers' class areas, mm. um, seem to be left behind. Yeah, definitely. That's what I'm hearing. And the statistics kind of back that up that, you know, there's really high population growth happening out in the West, but there isn't um, the existing infrastructure or even planned infrastructure to Mm. kind of support that. So I think a really important part is asking, you know, what does the community need out there? Mm. Um, You know, do do they need the same things as what the East has and traditionally has had for, you know, a long time and how that's working? Or, you know, are there new things that can be um, implemented out there that, um, yeah, will help solve some of those congestion problems and, um, you know, accessing jobs and um, education and, um, yeah, how we kind of, yeah, move about our city. Yeah, (laughs) excellent. So um, transport itself, uh, when people talk about the issue of climate change, which has kind of become this uh, like a meta-narrative that has moved about in uh, in the environment movement, um, we talk about uh, energy justice and energy systems when we talk about climate change a lot, but not many people are talking about it in terms of the way that we move around the city. Yeah, Um, it's this really interesting one, and I think um, climate change and the way in which uh, we're talking about kind of addressing it and, and um, yeah, really kind of um, fixing a lot of those structural inequalities that um, have led to the um, levels of climate change that we're now experiencing. Um, the energy sector is the big one that has been talked about, and, and rightly so. It's, you know, the biggest source of mm-hmm. our emissions and um, uh, has, like, ingrained a lot of those injustices that we see. But behind that, in fact, in Victoria, we have the transport sector is the second biggest um, source of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's certainly in the mix. And um, and you're right, it isn't really talked about as something that needs to be um, talked about in this climate change frame. And I wonder if in the coming years, as we start to see this um, more rapid transition away from dirty fossil fuels into clean energy, as that kind of sector is changing, um, that transport will become a much higher... Um, a much bigger issue that people are talking about. Um, and so I think it's important to start thinking about how we can use our transport system to break down some of those um, inequalities. And even as you were saying, you know, in the East, what kind of, you know, demographics we've got there and the um, access to transport options that they have compared to the West with the different demographics often considered, yeah, much more working class and um, uh, lower um you know, education levels and um, incomes and and that, yeah, they haven't traditionally been able to access the choice about transport that, you know, for them it's getting in the car and that's the only option. Um, and so it's how can we start building that narrative now and start building the solutions that we need to, to address some of those inequalities, much like the electricity sector is starting to do now. Mm. Um, so it'll be kind of like the next thing, I think. The next big thing. Um, A lot of people uh, maybe are listening at home and thinking, yeah, but um, I've heard about these electric cars and, and, you know, that's going to change and, you know, uh, Tesla are are bringing all these batteries in and things like that that will revolutionise the way that we move around in cars. Is is that a solution in itself? 
I think it's something that um, is considered, um, I think it's something that's really uh, grown in its like prominence and is potentially part of the mix of solutions, but isn't necessarily going to be the solution. It doesn't actually address the issues that we're talking about of having too many cars on the road, that mm. they get congested. Putting different types of cars on the road is still going to have the same amount of cars. It also doesn't address a lot of the health concerns that, you know, people who use public transport are 30% more active or people who are, you know, riding their bike or walking to the bus, you know, those kind of incidental um, areas of activity. Um, so there's kind of those elements. And then I see transport is more than just, um, you know, it's moving between places, but it's, you know, how we engage along the way. That it's, you know, connecting us to our friends and our family. It has those social connections. It has a lot of... Um, our understanding of how we connect to our city. And I think a lot of people, um, there's like a lot more people moving into our cities. There's a lot more, you know, strangers living close by. It's like, how do we actually want to interact with each other? Do we want to build that sense of community? And by having um, a way in which you're, you know, part of that community, if it's, you know, with the others on the bus or whether it's while you're waiting, you know, at the train station, you know, having those little incidental interactions or getting your coffee as you walk down to get on the tram and, you know, having a chat to the shopkeepers, it, it provides those little incentives to interact with your community and build those um, connections with your neighbours. But things like getting in your car um, and spending a long time in traffic by yourself often, mm-hmm. um, it just doesn't provide that. So, yeah, I think it, um, for me, provides a lot of those kind of social connections that, um, people talk about, you know, wanting to put back into the community a bit. Mm, yeah, we're talking to uh, Rachel Linsky. She's the Sustainable Cities campaigner at Friends of the Earth in Melbourne. Um, we were just talking about uh, um, uh, electric cars, are they solutions? Um, what does public transport really mean? And the Sustainable Cities campaign is a new one uh, as a part of Friends of the Earth. And uh, really, like, it's beginning to shape up that it's uh, a bit of a really holistic look at the way that we uh, work in the city and, and how we engage with um, the city as an environment, um, the natural environment, and, and how the way that we move around really affects um, also the natural environment, especially by, uh, like, the atmosphere and, and, and climate change. Um, I'm wondering, we've just got a couple of minutes um, to uh, wrap up this chat, um, but what are the, some of the things that uh, the Sustainable Cities campaign is hoping to achieve in the, in the near future? Yeah, I think we've got a few priorities. Certainly the investment in public transport is um, has to be paramount. It's giving more people more solutions um, that are safe, accessible and convenient so that they don't always have to jump in the car. Um, encouraging active travel. So, again, reducing the press- pressure on our road networks. The end of uh, building major road projects, you know, the more that we um, allow these projects to go ahead, the more that it kind of gives that social licence that it's okay to build more roads. Um, we already have a very large road network um, in Melbourne and all around Australia. Um, and particularly kind of related to that is like toll roads and the kind of injustices that are um, kind of wound up in that, that it's um, often private, you know, companies that are increasing their profits and placing that burden onto those that, you know, generally need to ro- use the roads for whatever reason and are often the least able to um, to be paying extra for that. Um, so, yeah, some kind of key areas that we're hoping to be working in. We've got um, an information night coming up in a couple of weeks' time on the 28th of August at 6.30pm at the Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. So this will be an opportunity for... Um, 
people to come along and join us and have a bit of a chat about, you know, what this campaign can really look like, mm. um, meet each other, meet others who are passionate about this, uh, and, yeah, start building a campaign together. Fantastic. That sounds great. So the 28th of August at uh, Friends of the Earth, 6.30 in the food co-op. What we'll do is um, we'll chuck that up on the Dirt Radio Facebook page. And if people jump on Facebook or go to melbourne.fo.org.au, um, look for Friends of the Earth Melbourne and you'll find all the details about that upcoming event on the website and on the Facebooks. Uh, thanks so much for coming into the studio, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I'm sure we'll be speaking much more as time goes on. Um, you're locked to 3CR at 855 am, 3cr.org.au. Thank you, Phil Evans. You can catch Phil and Co. talking all things sustainable on Dirt Radio every Tuesday at 9.30 a.m. The Sustainable Cities event that was mentioned in the interview is on August 28th. You can find out all the information on Facebook or check our website, 3cr.org.au. The time now is 7.35 a.m. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Yasas, Yasu and hello. This is Vasilios Papayuano from 3CR Monday Greek Show, where we talk politics, music from Greece, and all the community around. But did you know we also talk gardening? So for the gardening information, tips, and discussion in Greek, join me on my show Monday Greek. Every Monday evening from 8 o'clock, Right here on 3CR. Estás sintonizando 3CR 855 de tu día a la M. Se doy moro a radio 3CR 855 AM. Mishanavit. Kính thưa quý vị, đây là đài phát thanh 3CR trên lần sóng AM 855. Kính mời quý vị đón nghe. وتهيو حد نقدر يسنسان وراديها جاليدها اتري سي ار موجدسا سديد بقول كونتنيشن اي ام each week 3CR broadcasts over 130 programs in 25 languages supporting communities and viewpoints that you just don't hear about anywhere else subscribe to your award winning multilingual community radio station 3CR and help keep these voices on the airwaves call the station on 9419 8377. The number is again 9419 8377. The proposed Great Forest National Park would add 355 hectares more of protected forest to the Central Highlands. Since the state election, support in Victorian Labor has dimmed somewhat, facing pressure from logging interests countered by community and activist support. To tell us about the benefits of the proposed National Park, I'm joined in the studio by Ben Campbell, Victorian Community Organiser for the Wilderness Society. Welcome to the studio, Ben. 
Thanks for having me here. Um, so we're here to talk about the um, Great Forest National Park, and I imagine a lot of our listeners will know what we're talking about, but just in case, um, could you give us an idea of whereabouts in Victoria the, uh, the, the park is proposed to, to be set? Absolutely. So this is a, a beautiful vision for Victoria and the Great Forest National Park, and the proposal is to create a, a reserve system in the central highlands of Victoria, which is it's only an hour and a half northeast of Melbourne, and it's that mountain range which is blanketed by those beautiful tall mountain ash trees. And we're very hopeful that we'll see an announcement from the state government this term that we'll have the Great Forest National Park. Yeah, and so it, it's going to occupy the the part of Victoria that's sort of ranging between Warrigal up to Lake Eildon. Um, and so I imagine that um, encompasses a lot of um, Victoria's biodiversity. Well, you're right, it does expand over quite a, a large area, and, it, and it's home to many native creatures, some of which are endemic to that region. You only find these creatures in the central highlands, nowhere else on Earth. Um, unfortunately, because of the logging, uh, some of these creatures are endangered, some even critically endangered. Um, the most famous um, is the Leadbeater's possum, which is the faunal emblem for Victoria, and that recently reached a critically endangered level, which is one step away from extinction. But it's really an indicator species for the rest of the ecosystem. There are many animals in the same predicament as the Leadbeater's possum, um, owls, fish, frogs. A lot of these species depend on old, healthy forests to survive, uh, particularly like the possum and the owls. They need the hollow-bearing trees, and they're simply not there because the logging is taking these trees away. That's right. The area has been um, subject to logging, and that's actually quite a um, quite an important source of income for, for some of the people who live in that region. There's been pushback by um, local um, sort of uh, logging companies and logging um, organisations, and we're not often very sympathetic to them on on 3CR. But there are people who will lose their jobs. What what kind of jobs can you expect the um, Great Forest National Park to generate? What kind of employment? Great question, and I'm very glad you raised the issue of sympathy. One of our values at the Wilderness mm. Society is compassion, mm. and every job is important. We need to be compassionate to everyone. Um, the vision for the Great Forest National Park is about moving forward in a more sustainable direction, um, boosting the local economy and creating jobs. So a a recent independent report that was commissioned by the NOWS Group um, said that there will be 760 new full-time jobs um, when the Great Forest National Park is created, which is massive, and it's actually a lot more than the current jobs that are directly related to the logging industry. Unfortunately, the logging industry jobs aren't secure anyway, so if we were just to leave it to be business as usual, uh, usual, um, those jobs wouldn't be secure in the long term. There isn't enough wood um, to continue the supply, and the demand in the marketplace, because the the wood has been turned into paper, is now moving really strongly towards more ethical papers, and consumers don't want to buy products that are coming from native forests. So the vision of the Great Forest National Park is about job creation and boosting the local economy. And in my view, any state government would jump at that chance, and we're hoping that they they will. Absolutely. So um, one of the issues facing Central Highlands forests is that while they represent a significant chunk of our carbon stock or carbon capture, they are also subject to logging. Um, Maybe an obvious question, but what is the environmental need for a national park in this area? That's a great question. And... The cost of inaction is huge, um, so it really is, is urgent. 
Um, you raised a really important issue, which is the, the carbon stock in these forests. So that's directly related to climate change, which is a, a massively pressing issue. And if we're looking at any forest across the world in terms of carbon um, storage and climate change mitigation, it should be these forests that we're protecting. These forests, the mountain ash forests, store more carbon than any forest in the world uh, by far, and that's because of their their dense um, fibres in their trunk and all the carbon that's stored in the soil. So immense banks of carbon stored in these forests. Um, the carbon is, is one issue of many. The whole ecosystem is really on, on the brink of collapse. Um, the International Union for the Conservancy of Nature has recently red-listed these ecosystems, so the mountain ash ecosystems, as critically endangered. So essentially what that is saying is these ecosystems, due to the logging, are on the brink of collapse. And uh, the Wilderness Society is also um, specifically undertaking um, a, a series of tours in the in um, in the region that uh, we hope to see turned in the Great Forest National Park. Can you tell mm. us a bit more about the upcoming uh, walking tour in um, Tulangi? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of my favourite parts of the job is actually getting out to the forest because that's I mean it's a beautiful place to be. Um, I remember the first time going in there just being awestruck by the, the beauty of the area. And this is the, the experience we want to give more people. Um, it's quite a, a transformative experience for some, just getting out there and, and immersing yourself in that beauty, but also seeing the destruction that's going on. It's pretty confronting. And that's what we do in the tours. We, we mix the, the good, the bad and the ugly. And we take people into some really beautiful pockets, go for some really nice walks and cool temperate rainforests. Uh, but we also take people in to see what's actually happening. So lifting that veil of secrecy, taking people into logging coops, and they can they can bear witness to that, that destruction firsthand. It's quite confronting but very important for people to see what's going on. It's a day trip, so it's very accessible. Um, we leave from the office in the city, uh, we basically take care of everything. Everyone hops on a bus. Um, myself and my colleague would guide everyone round, and we're back for dinner. And it's been quite a transformative day for many. And so, what do you what do you hope that people who go on this um, this trip with you will take away, and what kind of action do you hope they'll be taking? Um, well, I suppose there's two parts to that in my mind. Um, there's the immediate action, which is um, do what you can. We're not prescriptive in uh, telling people what to do, but there's lots of practical things that we can suggest people do. One of the most um, practical and powerful things you can do at the moment is contact your local MP and express your desire for the park to be created. Uh, but there's lots more that you can do, and you can check out our website or come in and speak to us. Um, so, yeah, we're asking people to take immediate action. But at another level, what we're hoping to do is really give people a profound experience and question deeply, like, why do we need these places? Why do we bother taking action? Um, and really question that. Um, I think not enough people uh, think that way, and I think that's starting to change with what's happening around the world, and there's more and more people taking action. And it's that fundamental shift within society that I really... Um, take inspiration from and it's happened in the past with social movements and we're trying to do it again so that hopefully down the track um, we're not going to need to run all of these campaigns for the protection of nature because the, the culture and that paradigm would have shifted to the point where 
we've got a society that's taking more action and also we've got uh, leadership that has the environment much higher up in the agenda. Fantastic. Uh, and so if folks are interested in um, perhaps signing up for one of these tours, the, the one that's coming up soonest, that's, uh, that's early September. When about is that? That's right. So it's Saturday the 2nd of September. Uh, we'll be heading out to Tolangi. And this is a beautiful part of uh, the Central Highlands, the proposed area for the Great Forest National Park, or part of. Um, it's only an hour and a half away, very accessible, and just stunning. I mean, it's, it's home to many um, endangered species and... It's, it's a very uh, important ecosystem for that region. And then a, a month after that, Saturday the 7th of October, we'll be heading to Warburton. Um, equally beautiful, slightly different, and giving the, the, the forest adventurer uh, uh, another great experience out there. Awesome. And we'll have all of the information on our website. Ben Campbell for the Wilderness Society. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. That was a beautiful track from Joe Geyer, Yul Lul, from the album Sound of Indigenous Australia, Now and Before. That was released this year on the 7th of July, 2017. We have got a couple of community service announcements for you. So as Will says every week, get your pens ready because you might want to note this down. There's some great dates for your diary. Starting off with the Girls Radio Offensive, which is a 3CR fundraiser. It is on Saturday the 2nd of September, 8 till late, at Hot Shots on Buckley Street in Footscray. It's 5 to $10 on a sliding scale. Uh, we've also got a pretty cool um, set of um, workshops being held by Undercurrent, which is a not-for-profit organisation focused on building healthy relationships and challenging beliefs and actions that enable violence. Um, these are really fantastic um, sort of workshops that are coming up on the 22nd of August. There's one that's titled Introduction to Abuse in LGBTQIA Plus Relationships, and that's to explore violent and abusive controlling coercive behaviours in those relationships, LGBTQIA relationships. Looking at the particular forms violence can take, these, uh, that's on the 22nd of August, like I said, starting at 6.30 at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre at 251 Faraday Street, Carlton North, uh, and I believe that is free. It's in the library, so it is a free event, but I will um, put more information on the website. There are a couple more events in that series of workshops as well. Keep your diary open to the 27th of August because it is also the March to Save Lives. Um, it's a rally for a supervised injecting room in North Richmond. You might know um, last month we spoke with Kylie Troy West, who is one of the advocates for the supervised injecting room. She talked to us about the heroin crisis in Richmond and how important it is for them to get uh, an injecting room to help save lives. So Sunday the 27th of August, 10.30am, people are gathering at Jonas Street in North Richmond next to the train station. At 11, there'll be a march along to Victoria Street and Lennox Street, which is, I guess you might say, the, the heart of the crisis. Uh, and then at 11.20, there'll be a minute silence to remember um, those who have lost their lives. And unfortunately, it is um, an increasing number. If you want to find out more information, go to www.vicstreetdrugsolutions.org. Uh, Radical Ideas is back again, August 18th to the 20th in North Melbourne. That's being held in the Radic- uh, so the Electrical Trades Union building. And um, the subtitle for this Radical Ideas event is Sparking the Resistance. 
uh, they'll be talking about a whole lot of different things over the, the course of those, um, those three days. They've got a panel tearing down their barbed wire borders featuring Justin Akers Shakon via live video link, who's a US activist and educator, as well as Iraqi refugee Dilma al-Masodni. Um, and then there's also, um, a seminar on the feminist eco-socialist re- revolution in Rojava, 100 years of revolution, Russia to today, today, and rainbow rights around the world. So there's a lot of very interesting talks happening throughout, um, and you can look for updates on our webpage. But, um, yeah, so that's on August the 18th to the 20th, North Melbourne, like I said, and um, tickets are available online. We will post the links on our website. In October, Fair Go for Pensioners, Coalition Victoria, is having a 10th anniversary gathering. Um, it is being held at the Victoria Hotel on Little Collins Street in Melbourne from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. So that was the 13th of October. Um, they are actually looking for RSCPs for catering purposes. So if you jump on the Google machine and look up Fair Go for Pensioners, all the information will be on there. Fantastic. And also, I think we mentioned this earlier, but it does bear repeating because it's quite a big event coming up, which is the War, Peace and Independence, Keep Australia Out of US Wars, IPAN National Conference from 2017. IPAN is the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. Um, it's running from the 8th to the 10th of September. So that's next month. Uh, and it's $10 entry to the public forum at the Jasper Hotel Conference Centre. That's 489 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne, C- CBD. And there's also the conference, which is the 9th to the 10th. And um, that's a bit more. It's $50 or $30 per day, including lunch. Um, and that's at the Victorian branch building of the MUA on 46 to 54 Ireland Street, West Melbourne. There are a lot of themes, um, the growing threats of war, talking about Australia as its, in its role as a subservient ally of the US, um, public spending on wars, aggression and nuclear disarmament. So if you are interested in attempting, uh, sorry, attending any of those, uh, those events, um, go to our website where we've got more information. Otherwise, you can go to trybooking.com slash 286873. Alrighty, the time right now is 7.56, and uh, well, that's close enough. You know what time it is. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Right 
And that was the eternal Shirley Ellis with our introduction, Nitty Gritty, to Alternative News. Uh, we're running a little bit early, so we thought we'd let you enjoy most of the song there. Um, so Alternative News is our critical analysis of the news cycle using alternative sources. Um, every weekday at 8am, or as it happens slightly before 8am, we'll be covering the stories you aren't hearing about in the mainstream media. And we thought we might start with um, giving us a bit of a run through of what's in the mainstream papers, just so you know what we're dealing with here. Um, I'm looking at the front page of The Australian, and of course there's a very prominent um, article addressing the uh, the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, where there was a, uh, a alt-right or white supremacist organised rally held in a park when um, the city voted to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee, who um, is a prominent figure in the in the Confederacy and the law of the Confederacy. And so they weren't happy with a... Um, a a pro-slavery um, military leader being um, removed from the the public sphere, and so they came out these uh, these protesters and um, uh, made a made a big fuss about that happening. And so counter-protesters were also present. Um, a lot of folks from a lot of different backgrounds representing you know the decent people of Charlottesville, and there was a uh, um, a white supremacist driving a car who ploughed into the um, the counter-protesters, killing at least one as, as of this moment. And so the Australians run that story in their paper talking about the violence at those, um, those protests which continue. Um, and so just looking at the article, it's, you know, it's a piece of reactive journalism, and so that's fine. They're telling us exactly what happened. Uh, it's it's good to see that the Aust- uh, the Australian does make um, on page eight a good reference to um, how a lot of people are criticising Donald Trump's reaction to the event, which is basically to say that there's violence on both sides and it doesn't make a um, an out and out condemnation of of the violence specifically from the white supremacists, the literal Nazis who are there right now, and um, so it, it's good to see that um, the the Australians giving. A, a bit of broad coverage, even though we are still in the early stages of hearing about this um, this event. Um, there's also another article here in the Australian, um, same-sex coercion to hit schools. And it's uh, just um, repeating um, the Catholic Church's opposition to, um, to same-sex marriage and also... Um, the, the Catholic Church's fears that uh, in the campaign for the... I won't call it a plebiscite. It's a postal vote survey that's um, that's coming up unless it gets blocked. Um, that there'll be propaganda pumped into schools, and the result of a, a yes vote, and um, under the assumption that a yes vote on the plebiscite, the postal vote, will lead to a um, a yes vote on same-sex marriage, which isn't promised anyway. Um, that the the effects will include threats to um, Australian religious freedom. Um, which is their their sole concern, really. Um, and in this, it doesn't seem to really be talking very much to proponents of same-sex marriage because because the Australian, anyway. Um, but I, I think we've got another story on the same topic. Yeah, we'd also like to take a look at how the Financial Review and the Herald Sun are covering the marriage equality issue. So front page of the Financial Review, we've got um, a discussion, obviously from a business perspective, being the Fin Review, um, but it's talking about this coalition of church, school and ethnic groups who are fighting the same-sex marriage bill. Um, we've, there's an interview with a campaigner, Lyle Shelton, 
He's talking about whether, um, you know, people in boardrooms were aware of the broader agenda behind the rainbow flag. Um, he also refers to um, boards having not having done their due diligence in giving over their brands to a political cause. Um, I think that a lot of people would refer to marriage equality as a civil rights issue, not a political cause. Um, so it's an interesting way to refer to that. And then the Herald Sun covers same-sex marriage twice. Um, page 7 of the paper talks about um, some news around whether the bill will actually, if we do get a, a yes response, whether the bill could possibly be enacted by the end of the year. Then on page 13, we've got Andrew Bolt um, talking about how... It, Basically, scaremongering, um, the headline is, it won't end with gay marriage. Um, he's talking about the fact that um, if same-sex marriage becomes law, that things won't stop there. This mob won't stop there. He talks about um, the threats, insults, sneers and wails and theatrical sobs coming from activists um, and doesn't talk about, he's just talking about one side of the issue, um, as Andrew Bolt likes to do. And we expect nothing better. Um, there's also a article here on the front page of the Australian. Um, Bikey's visa challenge puts heat on Labor over ASIO reports. And as we are um, talking critically about the news here, I thought I think it's really important to talk about the kind of images that newspapers decide to put in their papers. Um, so, so they are talking about people who are accused of um, being part of bikey um, gangs engaging in criminal activity. Um, and so these are the ac- accusations, and it, it sort of links it to the hot topic of um, of visas being um, and their application to people who are accru- accused of crime. Uh, but the f- the, f- the images that they've chosen here are of the two people concerned in the article, and it focus uh, features very prominently um, the tamoko or the um, the facial tattoo of the um, of the the two men who are of um, Maori descent, and it's um, it's. Sort of, I, mean, I guess you'll have to look at the images yourself, but the way that they're, they're lit, um, sort of tries to connect these sort of very culturally significant and important, um, symbols of status that have been etched onto these men's faces to their sort of criminality or their, their accused criminality. And I find that really troubling. I mean, of course you, you have to identify people who the story is about, um, but, the the choice of photos that they've got here is just I don't know it doesn't sit well with um with a, a critical viewer a critical reader at least um, not in my my opinion I think that's an interesting question and if you happen to be walking past a newsstand I wouldn't recommend buying the Australian but just flip it over and see what they've done um, now to move on to actual alternative news sources I'm, I'm flicking through the conversation and um, there's a very interesting article about um, clearing the homeless camps um, on uh, so that, that is how it's phrased. It's they're talking about the tent city that was um, that was present in Martin Place in Sydney, and the uh, the controversy that arose from from people reacting to that. Um, the title of the article by Christy Clark is "Clearing Homeless Camps Compounds the Violation of Human Rights and Entrenches the Problem," and it goes quite in detail about the um, the ineffectiveness of simply clearing out people from from. Um, from camps like this, and uh, the, you know, there's mention of Clover Moore, the um, the uh, the Lord Mayor of Sydney, um, sort of taking a more human rights based approach um, in, in initially saying that the camp won't be cleared out unless 
people are given some form of permanent housing afterwards. Um, this doesn't seem to be happening because there's, um, there are other articles where uh, uh, the, um, a representative of the people living in uh, Martin Place, Lance Priestley, s- reporting that a lot of the people who are being cleared out don't have somewhere else to go. Um, so the piece in the, the, the conversation uh, was written before the, the camp was cleared out um, a little while ago. But um, it goes quite in-depth into the, the origins of the issues, and I think it's definitely a piece that's worth reading, um, talking about how the real problem is a lack of affordable housing, um, although it doesn't quite touch on a couple of the other systemic causes of uh, contributors to homelessness, and I think that would be, that'd be interesting to, to go into as well. Um, but there's another story in another publication yeah. about the same issue, isn't there? Yeah, there is. It's also covered in The Guardian. But before we finish up, I'd like to touch on the front page of the Herald Sun, which talks about the spread of the drugs death crisis. So in our community service announcements, you would have heard there's a march to save lives for a supervised injecting room in North Richmond. The piece on the front page of the Herald Sun talks about how the crisis is actually spreading to the outer suburbs of Melbourne and to regional Victoria. Um, One of the concerns of Kylie Troy West when she came in to speak to us was that the installation of CCTV cameras by the Andrews government in Richmond would actually cause a spread of um, heroin overdose deaths to suburbs surrounding Richmond. This article is just showing that that spread is already happening um, and that um, people are, the increase of illegal drugs from illegal deaths is increasing and now starting to rival the overdose deaths from some pharmaceutical drugs. Um, one good thing about the article is that um, it doesn't it doesn't talk about it until the final paragraph, but at least it does. It talks about um, drug dependency being a mental health issue rather than a criminal issue, and talks about the increase in funding for the treatment of um, of drug addiction. The last piece I wanted to touch on was on the front page of the Guardian. It is actually something that's happening in the UK, but I think is relevant to us. It is the withdrawal of a school shoe that was for sale um, after accusations of sexism. Clark's had a school shoe for young girls for sale that was called the Dolly Babe Mary Jane. The equivalent shoe for boys was called the Leader. So I just think it's worth being critical of what we see um, when we look at products and how they're marketed um, because I think it, it can be quite insidious when we're looking at products and we know that um, young people are quite impressionable and it's worth um, looking, being critical and taking action if we see something that, um, you know, sorry, you want to say something? Nothing. No, no, it's just, um, that we're very excited to talk to um, Paul Power, who's the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia. Earlier this month, the Refugee Council of Australia released the report Unwelcome Visitors, challenged, Challenges Faced by People Visiting Immigration Detention. In interviewing visitors to immigration detention centres, uh, as well as former detainees, the report found that there were increasing difficulties for people seeking to access centres to visit people in detention. The obstacles ranged from arbitrary and constantly changing rules, governing clearance to visit, overcrowding of visit- visitation facilities, and intensified security requirements impacting on the quality of visits. So um, last week we spoke to the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia, Paul Power, about the findings of the report, and we have him on the line again. Uh, Paul Power, welcome to the show. Good morning, Will. 
Good morning. Um, so we'll get straight into it. The report outlines clearly the importance of visitation to the mental health of people held in detention, as well as the accompanying benefits in detention centre management. Why is it that the Department of Immigration and Border Protection and the Australian Border Force don't recognise these benefits? Well, I mean, I think there's been quite a change in the way in which um, the detention centres are managed and also um, a significant change, in fact, in the people uh, managing detention centres. The uh, Department of Immigration and Citizenship, as it was, is now the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. There's also um, closely uh, aligned with the department is the Australian Border Force. Um, and as people know, you know, the government is heading towards bringing a whole lot of um, law enforcement agencies under the one banner, uh, including the, you know, the Department of Immigration. So what we've seen over several years has been a, a shift in the thinking within the department. There's also been a significant loss of long-term senior immigration bureaucrats who've gone to other government departments because they've been uh, unhappy with the direction of the Department of Immigration and a whole lot of new people whose focus has been in, in previous roles, um, been on law enforcement elsewhere, have come into the department and brought their thinking with them. The other thing that's also happened is that uh, the, you know, there have been legislative changes um, to increase the number of people, foreign nationals who've served um, terms in jail, uh, to face deportation um, back to their, their country of citizenship. So the threshold um, of... Uh, so if someone is a foreign national and they've served um, 12 months in, in prison um, for any particular crime, they're now you know, basically almost automatically facing deportation uh, to their country of origin. Um, and for that process to happen, people are being brought into detention you know, in, in significantly larger numbers. So we're seeing more people um, who've previously been in prison in the detention centres and they're mixing with people who are there for either for breaches of, um, you know, their visa or in the case of people seeking asylum for arriving in the country without a, uh, to seek protection from persecution um, without a, a prior visa. So um, so it ha all of these have actually added to a significant change, but I think our particular concern is the way in which, um, you know, the various challenges within immigration detention are being managed, and the focus is very much on security um, and on trying to reduce risk and the very positive benefits that community visitors bring um, you know, to the people in detention are being overlooked because the focus is almost exclusively on, on managing potential risk. Yeah, that's right. So the um, the, the the report by the um, Refugee Council of Australia, the Unwelcome Visitors Report, um, does actually make... Um, Recommendations. It recommends that the rules should be revised to better reflect and mitigate risks. Um, so, how how would this um, revision of rules ideally be processed? There doesn't seem to be. There's some uh, uh, communication with community groups between the um, the administration of these detention centres and community groups, but uh, but there there's a re recommendation in that respect, isn't there? Yeah, well, I mean, the 12 recommendations that we make can be summarised as um, being that we're recommending that the role of community visitors' detention be recognised and supported, that the roles, uh, the, the rules be consistent and publicly available, um, that security be appropriate rather than overbearing, and that people's detention be subject to independent review. So we're not arguing that there'd be no security or that uh, security 
be relaxed to a point where um, you know people are in danger, staff are in danger, other people in detention are in danger. What we're saying is it needs to be in an appropriate level um, and it needs to be applied uh, in circumstances and to individuals um, who create a risk rather than to everybody. Um, and so, um, but I think, I mean, the, the, you know, the beginning really is, is actually for the Department of Immigration to recognise that volunteers from the community, and these are people from all sorts of um, church and community groups, who uh, come into the centre to, to offer social support to people who are very, very isolated in immigration detention. So our first recommendation is for the government to recognise that that's an important role um, and that it actually serves their task of managing immigration detention centres well to have uh, individuals who aren't in any way connected with the, a person's detention coming in and, and providing uh, social support and friendship to people who are going through detention. Because one of the biggest issues for the department um, is the the psychological health of the uh, people who are there within within a detention centre. If people feel completely isolated, you know, and there's just so much evidence um, that's been uh, um, developed over the past 20 years to show, you know, the very negative impacts that um, long-term indefinite detention can have on people's psychological health. Mm. So, um, so, yeah. Sorry, you were saying... Uh, yeah, so we, it's really important that, uh, you know, the government recognises that these volunteers, you know, who are really selfless people who are going to, into a difficult situation, um, out of their sense of humanity or their, you know, their personal connection with um, people who've been detention in the past or whatever, it's really important that the government recognises that, uh, these people are actually performing a really important role for the Department of Immigration in managing these centres. Mm, that's right. There also seems to be a, um, a related but um, different uh, issue in, um, in detention facility management, which involves, on one hand, sort of the overbearing rules, as you mentioned before, where, for example, or an example that's given in the report is that a simple misspelling on an application can lead to the den- uh, denying a visit. Uh, but whereas, on the other hand, um, visits have also been cancelled or impacted by poor administrative um, practice, for example, uh, losing applications and that sort of thing, and so that's that's less less. Is that an issue of culture, or are there recommendations also for um for the improvement of the actual service that's embedded in these um these migration transit accommodations? Yeah, well, I mean, what we're asking for is is also for the rules, um, you know, to be very clear. I mean, they're constantly they seem to be constantly changing. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, the, the information that um, is available on websites, which often is quite sparse, can be at odds with um, how the rules are being applied in a particular detention centre. Or, you know, a visitor may say that one week, uh, you know, some particular rule is important and the next week, um, uh, you know, whoever is in charge on that particular day is not concerned about that particular rule. So the, I mean, what detention visitors are asking for is, is consistency um, and, and clarity. So asking for the, the rules to be consistent and public, public um, that arbitrary rules should be revised. Also, I think, I mean, it's not a specific recommendation, but something we're taking up with the Department of Immigration, is that the, um, the immigration staff and the contractors should actually take responsibility for, um, for their own uh, errors and mistakes. And we hear a lot of um, you know, anecdotes about um, people 
um, you know, being denied visits because uh, the you know they've applied online and there was some technical hitch from the department or the or um, the contractor's perspective, and uh, the contractor didn't receive information about uh, this person visiting. So that person, you know, in some cases, people have travelled hundreds of kilometres to, to visit a relative, um, applied the proper way on on the online form because the online form wasn't working. Then are denied a visit because they actually because their their form hasn't been lodged um, uh, with yeah. the detention facility managers. So this sort of thing happens all the time, and and you know rather than um, for uh, applying a bit of flexibility and understanding, um, you know people are, are often uh, in these circumstances rejected and, and prevented from from visiting uh, friends and relatives in detention. Mm. And so if people are more interested in uh, um, reading up on the report, we'll put the links on our website, but uh, there's also the uh, the uh, Refugee Council of Australia website. Uh, what was that again? Uh, refugeecouncil.org.au. Yeah, that's quite simple to remember. So Thank think, you. And the name, yeah, the name of the report is Unwelcome Visitors, so if you just Google mm. search un, un, Unwelcome Visitors and Refugee Council, you'll find it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Paul. No problems. Thanks. Lovely day. The time now is 8.20 a.m. You are listening to 3CR. You can hear us on 3CR Digital on your digital radio or 3cr.org.au if you'd like to listen online. Or, of course, on your AM radio, very old school, 855 a.m. Coming up next, we are going to have a listen to Beat Out That Rhythm on a Drum by Margaret Road Knight, an Australian female singer-songwriter. You'll know why I call that out when you hear our next interview. And now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble. When you're listening to the radio, how often do you stop and think whether gender is equally represented in the music that you hear? And not just the musicians, but the songwriters. If you did some digging, you'd find that just over 20% of songwriters are women. In fact, more women are represented in cricket than in songwriting in Australia. Jana Gibson from APRA AMCOS, APRA being the Australian Performing Rights Association, the copyright collective for Australian and New Zealand composers, lyricists and music publicists, and AMCOS being the Australasian Mechanical Copyright Owners Society, is here to talk to us about some new goals APRA AMCOS has set for gender parity. Jana, thank you for joining us on Monday Breakfast. Thank you for having me. Now, to give us a little bit of background... There was some research conducted by RMOT on female uh, screen composers that prompted APRA AMCOS to take action. Is that right? That's correct. Can we you... had um, uh, uh, appointed a woman by the name of Catherine Strong from RMIT to do that research. And can you tell us a bit about the research findings? Sure. So well, the reason we actually targeted that group is because of all our current membership um, sits at uh, 21.7% um, for our female members, and within a variety of genres, we have um, uh, you know m- multiple um, areas that 
that women's um, membership was quite low, but for film and television composers in particular, they only represent 13% in, in that particular genre. So that's what prompted us to go down that path. They are, um, also have a, a little bit different in terms of their way of um, working in that they're obviously writing um, to in more of a, sometimes more of a business sense. So therefore, they found that there were issues for them when they were um, trying to develop careers where there might be more of a uh, need to kind of work with other people um, around them, such as other um, men or women, but to be able to actually complete some of their work. So, so some of the challenges that they came across um, were a little bit different to what our um, the more traditional kind of songwriters, but it did give us some really good insights into what needed to be addressed. And the royalty pool was, was quite low as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it's quite interesting in terms of um, if, if you look at the, the revenue for that particular sector, um, you know, that they really, their earnings were quite similar percentage-wise. So of the, um, they were only earning 13% also of the revenue for that particular um, area. And that in itself, you kind of think that if you're trying to develop a career, it, it's difficult when you're earning such a low percentage um, of the pool. So I'm, I'm assuming that some of the issues that these women were facing into were then reflected in female songwriting? Yeah, so, so there was concept, there was, you know, general sense of feeling like, um, that they needed a little bit more support in terms of networking to give them more exposure to, um, develop further relationships and particularly within the broader songwriting, um, um, world, there really is an, an opportunity for more, there is more of a need for an opportunity for collaboration. Um, and some women were just finding that a little bit more difficult. Uh, there, there is interesting um, responses by some people around feeling like they didn't necessarily have the confidence in their work, that they felt that they were their work was good enough, but they didn't have enough confidence to actually um, be very proactive about putting it out there and saying, you know, I, I should be putting out my work um, publicly. So we saw that there were some skills for um, women that were more around confidence, uh, not just about the actual development of their craft. And you're setting some pretty ambitious goals over the next three years to reach gender parity? We're certainly attempting to. So, um, yeah, we're, we're quoting that we'd like to set a goal of um, 25% increase in our female members year on year over the next three years. Um, and I guess that then requires us to do a few things um, internally. And I think one of the key things is um, we're referencing visibility. So, therefore, we've attempted to put in a, a quota of... 40, 40, 20 when it comes to women actually being represented uh, across our programs and also across a series of events that we might be involved with. What would you say to people that this kind of positive discrimination gives women an unfair advantage? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to have that feedback um, and, and we certainly have received that and, I, and even before we made this um, statement, people were saying that as well. But I think sometimes... That positive discrimination just gives women that confidence that they are able to take the next step or that they might be in a position to um, be perceived as uh, being, being a bit more confident uh, in their work. Uh, I have to say I am a person who had someone tap me on the shoulder when I was saying, oh, I can't do that. And they went, yes, you can. And, and it was a man who encouraged me to move to the next role. And if I didn't have that, that you know, little bit of a push, I wouldn't. 
kind of have progressed in my career. So, and I'm not a songwriter, but knowing how um, communities work and how, you know, being able to feel like you, you're feeling supported as a group, I think that just makes you feel like, well, you know, I, I can do this. And, and that's all we're trying to do is provide a little bit of opportunity for women to feel like that they should have the confidence in their work. And hopefully the people that, that do believe that are in the minority, because I'm sure there are a lot of women and men out there who would like to support women in the industry. What, what yeah. can they do to help you reach your goals of gender parity in songwriting? Well, I think collectively we're all talking about this much more now and so as a, as a broader industry our intention is that um, you know, we, we're running this mentoring program as well so that, that, that is an, um, a really good foundation for us to say okay here's an opportunity for some people to feel like they are having an opportunity to be networking so within the broader industry men and women being part of that mentoring program with us, but also um, being able to feel like the it's okay to talk about um, the, the, the issue of gender parity and have men involved in that conversation. It's a really important element of what we're trying to focus on because it's just building awareness broadly for people to think um, about making sure that there are females having opportunities, not, not just men. You mentioned the mentoring program. Can you tell us a little mm. bit about more about what that entails? Sure. So the mentoring program is an opportunity for uh, um, across genres, so for songwriters and composers across genres, um, for us to be able to give them a chance to work with um, people who are from that particular sector. And give, there's a variety of um, opportunities at the moment, and we're looking in the space of jazz as well as art music as well as um, popular contemporary and so our intention is to partner um, some of the some emerging um, female uh, songwriters and composers with more established um, men and women in each of those particular genres so we're rolling that out um, later in the year and the, those partnerships are, are um, actually quite a, a, a good sign that, that the broader industry are actually happy to um, talk with us and, and partner with us on, on delivering this. Where can prospective mentees and mentors <laughs> go for more information? <laughs> At this stage, they would, it, it will be on our AMCOS website, but we are still in early stages of actually um, sharing what, what that will entail. Um, but it's certainly in, in all of the research, you'll see that there is a note that we're looking at rolling something out later this year. If you would like to find out more about APRA AMCOS's Gender Parity Goals and the Mentorship Program, we'll put the website details up on our website, 3cr.org.au. Jana, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and, and best of luck. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that was an interview with Jana Gibson from APRA ACMOS. Um, earlier we spoke to the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia, Paul Power, and before that um, was a conversation with Ben Campbell, the community organiser from Wilderness Society, where we spoke about the Great Forest National Park and the walks happening in Tulangi State Forest, which you should jump into our website to find out more about. At 7.20, we heard from Phil Evans from Dirt Radio speaking with Rachel Linsky from the Sustainable Cities Campaign. And at the top of the show, we spoke to Irene Vailer, the Artistic Director of Outer Urban Projects and also the Director and Composer of Vessel. If you want to hear more about the show, you can jump on our website, 3cr.org.au. I hope you folks have enjoyed the show today. We've had a couple of things, but like we say, we're going to put everything on our website just so you can find all the links. And um, you folks have a, a wonderful, lovely and safe, uh, safe Monday. This has been Monday Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.